Good morning, everybody. Thought I'd start off by telling you a little story about my week on Friday. I uh, told one of the three tens, I'm not going to name names, partly because I want to see how many parents come up to me after and guess, but I told one of the three tens I would be uh, speaking on Sunday this morning, and they said to me, oh, that's awesome, I can't wait, which really warmed my heart. Um, to get feedback from a teenager that's positive is very rare. Uh, and I felt really great about myself, and so I said, oh yeah, why? Why are you so excited? And they said to me, because every time you go on that stage, you embarrass yourself somehow. <laughs> and so uh, there's nothing like youth to keep you humble, right? Um, again, if you want to guess whose child that is later, you can come and ask me, but I won't say it from the front. Um, but we're going to be in Genesis 35 today, and we're going to go through the story uh, together, this account in the life of Jacob. And so I encourage you to find that in your Bibles. But before we dig in, I just want to pray this morning. Father, we are here to worship you, to hear from you today, and we pray that as we gather here that you would lead us into your wisdom, into your word today and that you would just reveal your truth to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, it's, it's Olympic time, right? The Olympics are wrapping up, I think, this morning. I can't keep track of the time change, but uh, I'm a big sports fan, and every time there's Olympics on, I feel like that's a great excuse to talk sports from the front. I try not to do it too much. Um, but I feel like a lot of people get into the Olympics. There's some national pride in that. But one of my favorite stories from the Olympics from all time actually came from the 1968 uh, Mexico City Olympics. A guy named John Aquari, and I have a picture of him here. Some of you maybe know this story a little bit, but John Aquari is a, a guy from Tanzania who was racing in the marathon that year. And the marathon is the big event of the Olympics. It's how they end it every year. It has roots back in the ancient games, and it's a big deal. And this guy from Tanzania, John Aquari, went all the way to Mexico City to compete in the marathon in the 1968 Olympics. And it was one of the hardest marathon events that's ever happened in the Olympics. Mexico City is super hot. It's high altitude, so the oxygen levels are different. And people from, from different places of the world weren't able to prepare. This race was so difficult, 18 out of the 75 runners dropped out of it before it was finished. And before he got to halfway done the race, a quarry had a terrible crash, fell, dislocated his knee, messed up his shoulder, and hit his head. And in that moment, it's easy to think through all of the thoughts that probably went through his mind. How easy it would be to just give up, to realize your race has just come to a crashing halt. And I think in a lot of ways, that's the way that our, our Christian life can feel sometimes, right? I don't think it's a coincidence that throughout the, the New Testament, there are several places in, in Hebrews, Galatians, 2 Timothy, where our relationship to God, our walk in faith is described as a race. And I think there are a lot of times in our lives where it feels like our race has kind of hit that crash, where we can't keep going forward anymore, where we have become complacent in our faith, that God hasn't taken that fire in our heart that he used to, to take up that space. 
Or maybe we've come into doubts, doubts in the way that, that God is as good as he says he is because maybe our loved ones aren't following God the way that we thought they would or we've come into difficult times and we're wondering if God is really who he says he is. Or maybe we've crashed into sin and for whatever reason we have, there's often times in our lives where it feels like our race has come to a halt where we aren't moving forward. But here's the incredible story about John Aquari. He got up, he bandaged his knee, and he kept going. Now, most people didn't know that he kept going. In fact, by the time he got to the stadium to do the final lap of the 400 meters, the, the medals had already been given out, people were leaving the stadium, the TV crews were about to shut down, and then, in comes this last runner, hobbling around the track. The cameras all turn their attention. People start to come back into the stadium to see this guy finish. And I don't know about you, but, but in, in my life, I want to make sure that I'm not one of those 18 runners who didn't finish the race. I want to make sure I get back up and keep following Jesus the way John Aquari finished that race in Mexico City. When he was asked afterwards why he did it, he had no chance of winning. He finished the race over an hour after the winner. They asked him, why did you keep going in all of that pain? And this is what he said. My country did not send me 5,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. And as I reflected on that quote this week, all I could think of in my life and and I hope you feel the same way. Jesus didn't come so I could start my race with God. Jesus came so that by his power, I would finish it. But how do we do that? How do we have the strength to go forward? How do we find that motivation? And today when we read Genesis 35 and we look at the life of Jacob, we're going to find him in that place where he has become complacent where his journey with God isn't really going anywhere. And we'll see what God does in his life to bring him back into that race, to get him moving back to God again. And through what God does in Jacob's life, we can see how we can finish our race as well. And so the first thing we see here as we open our Bibles and we turn to, to verse 1 here in 35 we see the first thing we need to know is that we need to turn back to God. Just reading the first verse here, it opens with this. Then God said to Jacob, go up to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. Now, this might not seem significant when we read it. It just seems like an opening, but it is very important for us to understand. This is the only time where God tells one of the patriarchs to build an altar. And he says it because he has to. When, when I first started here at this church, the first Mother's Day we had, it was an awesome morning, we handed out the, uh, the gifts at the end, and I got some of the youth to be involved in handing those things out. And we, we wished all the mothers at church a, a happy Mother's Day. And I went home. I told Fiona happy Mother's Day. Don't, I'm not that bad. I went home and I rested, 
And uh, Wednesday that week, I realized I had never called my mom and wished her a happy Mother's Day. And I kid you not, every family dinner we had that year, it may have been brought up. There may have been a subtle reminder of, oh, you wished all those other moms a happy Mother's Day, but not me, in a very nice way. A year later, I'm sitting in church, it's Mother's Day again, and I get a text from my cousin. And that text says, call your mom and wish her a happy Mother's Day. If I have to sit through one more family dinner where she calls you out for it, I will kill you. (laughs) I needed that reminder. Jacob is told to build the altar here in chapter 35 because he needs the reminder. You see, back in chapter 28, when Jacob has that encounter with God where he sees the the ladder, Jacob's ladder, and the angels ascending and descending, chapter 28, at the very end of it, we see Jacob make a promise. In verse 20, Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God and this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house and of all that you give me, I will give a tenth. Jacob makes a vow saying, God, if you are with me, if you take care of me, if you make me successful, I will return and I will worship you. And here in Genesis 35, after everything God has done for him, after bringing Esau and Jacob back together, Jacob still has not gone back. He started his race. He's the chosen one of God who the blessing has passed on to through Isaac. He's experienced God in two incredible ways when he sees the ladder and when he wrestles and is blessed by God and has his name changed to Israel. He's made a promise to follow God and be faithful to God, and yet he isn't. He's just stopped. He's become complacent where he is and satisfied in life, and he has no plans of going back and fulfilling his vow. And so God says to him, Jacob, go back and do what you promised you would do. Jacob's attention was not on God at all, and God sends word to him and calls him and says, turn back to me. And so when we're in that situation in life where we feel like we're not moving forward, when we're not thinking about God because we're clouded by the sin that we have in our life or the doubts that we have or we've just become comfortable, God says to us, turn back to me. Come back to the one you love. Come back to the one who made you and has saved you. Turn back to me. And so Jacob goes back to the God he worships, back to the God he loves. And the question that we have when we see this is, are we willing to do the same? Are we willing to turn back to God when we hear him calling? Maybe we need to go back to a small group. Maybe we need to start going back to church regularly, picking up our Bibles more often, spending time with God so that we're not just complacent, but so that we can know him better and come back to him and remember and see the God that we love and that we worship. 
So the first thing we need to do is, is turn back to God. The second is we need to focus on God. We need to focus on God. We'll continue reading. Too many papers up here. Dr. Reed would kill me if he knew I had these. We'll continue reading from verse 2. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel, where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings in their ears, and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. Then they set out, and the terror of God fell on the towns all around them so that no one pursued them. Jacob and all the people with him came to, to Luz, that is Bethel, in the land of Canaan. There he built an altar, and he called the place El Bethel, because it was there that God revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. And so what we see here is if we want to come back to God, if we want to continue in our race, we need to make sure that our attention is fixated on God, that our eyes are fixated on Christ. We need to get rid of all of the distractions, all of the idols, all of the other gods that are in our lives. You see, when we read through the, the, the book of Genesis, what we see what helps us understand God and our relationship with him best is the covenant. The covenant is behind all of Genesis. And the basic, basic requirement of the covenant relationship between God and his people is you worship God alone. Abraham was brought out of a pagan home so that he could focus on God. And here Jacob is, is two generations later, and they brought the gods back from Abraham's homeland with them. And so what they see here is if they're going to continue in this relationship with God, if they're going to enter back fully into this covenant relationship, they need to prepare themselves for it. They need to make sure that there are no distractions, that there are no other gods pulling at their hearts or their attention because they are to worship and be with God alone. They are his people and so Jacob says, give me all of the gods that you have. Give me all of your idols. And they bury them and they dump them in the ground and they leave them behind. And what's amazing about this, one of the things that we, we forget is that if you bury your gods and they stay buried, then they're not really gods to begin with. They do nothing for you. Jesus was buried. He didn't stay buried. He is God. But if you can bury your gods and they don't come back, they're not really gods. You're not giving up anything. But they need to prepare themselves. And I think they have to do that because of two reasons. One, if they had these other gods, these other idols that they would worship and rely on at different times, they wouldn't be able to experience the fullness of God. This past Friday, we had family movie night at my house. And I was sitting on the couch, and we set up these tiny tables and chairs for the kids. And I'd gotten a message from, from one of the, the volunteers at work. And so I went to check it while the movie was on and replied just to make sure there was nothing crazy that was happening. And as I pull out my phone and I'm replying to the message, uh, Avi, my five-year-old daughter, turns to me and says, 
Dad, it's family movie not, night, not texting night. <laughs> so on the same day that a, high, or a, a junior high kid told me that I embarrassed myself, my five-year-old corrected me on how to behave. Um, but it's true because in that moment, I'm not experiencing my family. I'm not experiencing the movie. My attention is divided. And God is saying to, to Jacob and the people there, if you want to experience me, if you want to actually be in this relationship, then you need to focus on me, get rid of all of the distractions. But even further than that, they needed to make sure they were ready to be in the relationship with God again. You see, this idea of preparing, of cleansing yourself, is something you find over and over again in Scripture. Because you cannot be in a relationship, you cannot be in the presence of a holy, perfect God and hold on to your sin and your idols. It's not possible. A few years ago, I, I went on a meeting with a parent. I didn't tell them I was going to tell this story, so hopefully they don't, they don't get mad at me. I went to, to have a meeting with a parent's uh, just to talk about the youth program so they could get to know it a little bit more. And they invited me to go on their sailboat uh, to have the meeting, which if you ever get a meeting, you're like, oh, yeah, just go sailing. Yeah, of course I'm going to go sailing. We could talk about whatever you want. Um, so we went, but he said, he said, just meet me in the yacht club, and I'll, I'll come out and I'll, I'll, we'll go to the boat. And not thinking through anything, I didn't prepare myself at all. Uh, I, I threw on my shorts, which used to be pants that were cut, uh, I threw on a, a plaid shirt, obviously, and I threw on my hat. I hadn't cut my hair in a long time. I threw on my hat, and I waltz into the yacht club. And <laughs> there's not a lot of people there, but there's a couple people working there, and they just kind of look at me funny. And I'm like, uh-oh. And I started to get the feeling that I had done something wrong. And then they walked over to me, and they said, sir... You can't wear your hat in here, which I understood as, sir, you look so out of place here, it is ridiculous. And I took my hat off, but I hadn't brushed my hair or cut my hair in a long time. And so it's just sticking out and up and everywhere. And I realized that I did not belong there. Uh, luckily, I, I didn't have to stay there very long, but I never felt so out of place. I should have prepared myself. To, it's a yacht club. I mean, brush your hair. Uh, but I didn't, and I was so out of place. And when we come to God and we don't prepare ourselves, we cannot be in the presence of God. We are so out of place. To come before God with sin and idolatry in our hearts is, is to face death. And so God says, you, you turn back to me, you come back to me, but you make sure that you are fixated on me, that you are focused on me, that I am your God and you are my people. Because if you're not focused here, you're going to miss out on the fullness that I have for you. You're going to miss out on the experiences that I have that I'm preparing for you. And you're not going to be ready for what we have in store. I'm a perfect, holy God. Prepare yourself for me. And so we need to get rid of our idols. We need to get rid of our sins. And we might say, oh, I don't have any statues or idols at home that I need to bury. But let me ask you this. Do you have any sin that you cover up? that you hide in the saddlebag instead of dealing with? Do you have any distractions in your life that are pulling you away from God, 
that you just excuse somehow, that you justify. I do. And if we're going to come before God, we need to deal with those things. And, and it's an ongoing process, right? Abraham had already left the idols behind, and here Jacob is, again, collecting them from the family, from the group. When we notice these things coming up, and we better be praying about them and paying attention to them, we need to deal with them. We need to bury our idols. We need to bury our sin. And then we need to fill that space with God and focus on Him. It's not enough to just get rid of them. They buried their idols, and then they kept going. And this is how we know that they started focusing on God. It's very subtle here. But did you notice that Bethel actually gets called something else here? Jacob doesn't call it Bethel. He calls it El Bethel, which is this place is now going to be remembered for the God of the house of God. See, he had an incredible moment there where he experienced God, and that place was special to him. It was holy, and he, he had called it Bethel. But here, as he focuses on God, he remembers this is not about the place. This is not about the experience I had. I'm not chasing that feeling. This is about God. I am focusing on God now. And so if we want to continue in our race, if we want to get up and out of that complacent place, we need to turn back to God and focus on him. And then we need to remember him. I want you to notice what God does here after this. We'll start back in verse 8. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and was buried under the oak outside Bethel. So it was named Alon Bakuth. After Jacob returned from Padan Aram, God appeared to him again and blessed him. God said to him, Your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you, and kings will be among your descendants. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac I also give to you, and I will give this land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him at that place where he had talked with him. Jacob set up a stone pillar at the place where God had talked with him, and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. Jacob called the place where God had talked with him Bethel. There is nothing new that happens in that section of Scripture. Jacob had already met God in that place before. Jacob's name had already been changed to Israel. Those commands and those promises are not new. They've been given out before. So did God forget what he had said before and said it again? Did he have this moment of amnesia? No. He's reminding Jacob who his God is. He's reminding Jacob that he is God Almighty, that he is good and gracious and faithful to all the promises that he has in store. He is reaffirming everything that he has already given to Jacob. He is reestablishing that relationship again. He's saying to Jacob, remember who your God is. Almighty and faithful. Remember the promises and the goodness that you have from me. And by causing Jacob to remember who God is, God also helps Jacob to remember who he is supposed to be. 
He says, Jacob, don't you forget, you are Israel. You are the promised one, the chosen one. You are the one through whom I'm going to bless all of the people of the world. You are the one through whom I am building my redemption plan upon. You have wrestled with God. You are Israel. And so we need to remember who God is in our life. We need to remember that he is the God who created us, who saved us, who has called us. We need to remember what his promises are. You need to go through your scriptures and write down what promises God has made to you so we don't get confused and remember he is faithful. We need to remember his goodness in our life and we need to allow God to tell us who we are. So often we let the voice inside our head or the voices around us dictate who we are and how we feel about ourselves. But we need to turn to scripture to remember who we are. Jacob needed to remember that he is Israel, that he belongs to God. And we need to know that we are God's children. We are his creation. We are dependent upon him. We need him for everything we have, every single breath we take. And we are incredibly loved by him. We are forgiven by him. He's incredibly patient with us the way he's patient with Jacob. He sent his son for us. We are loved by God Almighty. That is who we are, and we need to try our best to remind ourselves of who God is and who we are in him every single day. We are to remember him. And how do we know if we're doing that well? What does Jacob do after this? He builds the altar he offers a drink offering and pours oil on it. He worships. If you want to know if you have the right view of God and the right view of yourself, if you want to know if you're doing well, remembering God and remembering who he's called you to be, your heart should lead you to worship. Your heart should lead you to praise. You should have such a clear picture of the greatness of God. You should have such an appreciation for his salvation in your life, that he is your primary focus, that you are worshiping him, you are praising him, you are filled with love for him, and you are willing to serve and worship him. If that's not where you're at, you need to remember who God is and remember who he's created you to be and saved you to be. When we understand, when we truly remember, we're moved into praise and worship the way that Jacob is moved into praise and worship here. And here's the last thing I want us to see in the, in the life of, of Jacob here. We turn back to God, we focus on him, we remember him, and then we rely on God. And we're actually going to walk through the rest of this chapter, and then I have two comments on it at the end. But what I want us to see here is how Jacob relies on God now. He's not taking matters into his own hands and scheming anymore. He's not complacent and just sitting through life, enjoying what God has given him. He's relying on God now. So we'll pick back up from verse 16. We're going to walk through it and then two comments at the end of that, that section. Then they moved on from Bethel, 
While they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty. And she was having, uh, and as she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, don't despair for you have another son. I've met some of your sons and to hear you have another one, I feel like wouldn't really be that comforting in that moment, but that's what they say. I'm just kidding. Your children are great. Don't take them from me. Um, Don't despair, for you have another son. As she breathed her last, for she was dying, she named her son Ben-Oni. But his father named him Benjamin. And so what we see there is she names him Ben-Oni, which which means son of my sorrow. Uh, It's an idea here that, that, that... this son of hers has, has taken her, her strength away from her, has, has brought her to sorrow, has brought her to death. So she names her son, her son Ben-Oni. But Jacob doesn't, doesn't take that name. He changes it to Benjamin, which is son of my right hand. And he takes this concept of sorrow and grief and despair, and he changes it to a, an image of power and reliance, a a position of honor. He changes the name. Uh, So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar, and to this day, that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. Israel moved on again. That's the first time he's actually called Israel, by the way. That's the first time it's actually just used Uh, of him. It's not just said, oh, your name is going to be Israel. This is the first time he's called Israel. Israel moved on again and pitched his tent beyond Megal uh, Eder. While Israel was living in that region, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah, and Israel heard of it. Jacob had 12 sons, the sons of Leah, Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Rachel's servant, Bilhah, Dan, Naphtali, uh, Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Leah's servant, Zilpah, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padam Aram. Jacob came home to his father, Isaac, in uh, Mamre, near Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had stayed. Isaac lived 180 years Then he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, old and full of years, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I missed this a lot when I had read this this passage in the past. Um, Isaac is still alive. Do you remember the whole deal with the stealing of the blessing and like, I'm going to die? It's been like 40 years and Isaac is still alive. Uh, He was incredibly wrong about how much time he had left. And I think it's important for us to just notice that there for a second. But what I really want us to see here is that Jacob relies on God now. And we see this in two, two big ways, the importance of relying on God. We see this in two big ways. The first is that Jacob relies on God in difficult times, in times of pain. In this chapter alone, there are three deaths. Rebecca's servant, Jacob's favorite wife, which is a weird phrase, uh, Rachel, and Jacob's father, Isaac. And amongst all of that, his firstborn son has betrayed him and moved against him in a humiliating way. 
And through all of that, Jacob is still relying on God. He's still focused on God. And we see this in two big ways here. The first, this chapter is the first time we see all 12 sons of Jacob listed in order. This is the first time we see them all together. These 12 sons who are going to be the, the, the move towards the 12 tribes of Israel. This big next step in the covenant relationship between God and his people. And here it is completed for us to see. God is still at work in all of the chaos that is around Jacob's life and how difficult it is for him. And he still hangs on to God because of what, is, what God is doing. But then I want you to also notice the end. Jacob's come back home, back to the promised land, back to where God called his family to be. And he and Esau come together in what would have seemed incredibly unlikely just a few chapters ago to bury their father And the covenant promise continues in the promised land. Jacob has come home. His situation is difficult. He's experiencing loss, grief, shame, anger, all of these things. But through it all, he's faithful to God. And God continues to work through him to bring his people back to him. It wasn't like Jacob just came back to God. He turned back to God and focused on him. He remembered who God was, and God's like, okay, you're going to have an easy life now. When Jacob comes back, death, scandal, fights for power, family issues that are complex to say the least. And he relies on God. When we come to God, we come into a relationship with him. God doesn't promise us it's going to be easy. He promises us he's going to be there with us. He promises us that he's going to take us to the promised land. He's going to bring us complete in our salvation one day where life will be easy with him again. But in this life, we are to follow him and rely on him through the difficulties that we go through and trust that he is still at work, that he is still moving, that nothing will get in the way of his promises. But the other reason we need to rely on God that we see here is actually through Reuben. You see, what Reuben did wasn't just an act of of lust. We see a warning here. What Reuben did was actually a power move. It was a political move. He slept with Bilhah to make sure that after Rachel, the favorite wife, died, it wouldn't be Bilhah, her servant. It would be Leah. He slept with Bilhah so Jacob never would again. He slept with Bilhah so that that side of the family wouldn't continue to grow anymore. It was only Leah's side now that could be the favorite, that could, could grow. He, he purposely corrupted that side of the family tree so that Leah's side, his mother, would become the favorite, that their side would be the biggest, so that their side would be the one who the blessing poured out onto He tried to grab God's promises and blessing and take them by force. In fact, sleeping with a concubine was a a move that that, uh, people who were trying to overthrow a kingdom would do. If you think through uh, 2 Samuel, this is what Absalom does on the roof of the palace with David's concubines. It was a way to show, I am in control here now and there's nothing you can do about it and I'm going to publicly shame you. 
This was Reuben trying to say, I am now the head of this household. My family's the biggest side. My family's the most important side, and I'm going to go ahead and become that children of blessing, that child of blessing. But what Reuben is about to learn is that you cannot make God do what you want. You cannot force God into submitting to your will. You cannot force God's promises. When you try to take control of your life, if you try to take control of God and form him to your will, God's plan doesn't change. You don't alter God's plan. You're not more powerful than God. What you do is you bring brokenness and chaos into your life, and you miss out on what God has in store for you. The greatest irony here is Reuben is trying to make sure his family is the one that gets the covenant blessing. When we turn to Genesis 49, we get to the point where Jacob passes on his blessings. And I'm going to read you the first couple here. In, in chapter 49, Jacob called for his sons and said, Gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to your father Israel. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power. Turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel. For you went up onto your father's bed, onto my couch, and defiled it. Reuben was trying to grab hold of that covenant blessing, and he disqualified himself from it. He removed himself from being the chosen one of God by trying to forcefully take it from God. Continue, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly, for they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Cursed be their anger, so fierce and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. And what we see here is actually the, the chapter previous to the one we're looking at today, chapter 34, Simeon and Levi also disqualified themselves from being the child of blessing through their uh, overbearing anger and retaliation against a whole group of people that should have been dealt with with one person. And so because of their actions, their lack of trust in God to take care of their family, they've also been removed from being the child of blessing. But this is where it's interesting. We, we sang today, uh, our God is the lion, the lion of Judah. Listen to this. Judah, who is a son of Leah, Judah, your brothers will praise you and your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to, uh, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his." God's chosen one came from the family of Leah. Reuben didn't have to do this. In fact, by doing this, he brings chaos and sin and destruction into his life and prevents him from experiencing what God had in store for him and his family. Reuben's disqualified. Simeon and Levi are disqualified. Judah, from the family of Leah, becomes the child of promise through whom the Messiah, Jesus Christ, comes. 
when we try to take matters into our own hands, when we try to form God's will to ours, we miss out on the promises that he has for us, for the good things that he has for us, and we bring chaos into our lives. Another way we see this in this chapter is, did you notice in verse 8, I skipped over it, in verse 8 we get the account of the death of Rebekah's servant. We never in scripture get the account of the death of Rebekah. And remember her role in that whole Jacob, let's steal the blessing from God thing. You get the account of Sarah's death. You get the account of Rachel's death. You even get the account of Rebecca's uh, servant's death. But somehow she is lost in the scriptures. She doesn't come back. She isn't relevant. And most scholars would tell you that's because of what she did. When we try to take the will of God and form it into our own, we miss out on what God has for us. And so we are to rely on God in the difficult times, rely on God and trust in his goodness and watch how he carries through on his promises. So as we close here, I want to remind us of everything we've seen in the life of Jacob here, that when we are in that moment where we, our race has come to a crashing halt, and we're wondering how do we get up and keep going, we need to remember that we are to turn back to God, we are to focus on God, we are to remember God, and we are to rely on God. It's all about God. Why? Because God pursues us. We have a God who doesn't leave us in our sin and our brokenness and our complacency. We have a God who comes after us. Did you notice this whole chapter comes with God sending his word to Jacob, calling Jacob back to himself? This wasn't Jacob one day saying, I really feel like worshiping again. I really feel like going back to God. This was God saying to Jacob, it's time for you to come back. He sent his word for Jacob and said, Jacob, come back to me, the God who loves you. Come back and worship me. Come back and follow me like you promised me you would. And maybe there's those of us here in this room who said, I promised I would follow after God and I'm not doing a good job of that now. But this is what we need to remember. Just as God sent his word to Jacob, God has sent his word to us. He has sent his son for us. And on the cross, Jesus is saying to us, come back to me. Leave your sin behind. Come back and follow God. And, and he gives us his spirit so that we can learn to trust God, so that we can grow in our relationship with him. He's given us his spirit so, to enable us to focus and to trust God and to grow in who he's created us to be and who he saved us to be. And so we need to know that we are talking about a God who loves us, a God who rescues us. And if God didn't let go of Jacob, then he'll never let go of me. And so we turn and we trust and we remember and we rely because God sent his son for us and calls us back to him to experience his love, his grace, and his mercy to give us the power we need to get back up and follow him. We serve, we love, we worship the God who pursues us. Let's pray. Uh, worship band, you can come back up. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that 
Even though we sin and we run from you, even though we become complacent and lazy in our love and affection for you, God, even though I don't have the strength to follow you the ways I should, you've pursued us, God. You have sent your son for us. You have sent your word to bring us back to you, God. And may you cause each of us here to remember your goodness and who you are, to remember your promises in our lives, that we are your children, that we have an eternity with you. May we remember that you are the God Almighty. And may we worship you and praise you today and moving forward, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.